Take your Bibles once again and turn back to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. The 30th president of the United States is one of the more unknown presidents of the United States, but when you actually pay attention to what he did during his presidency, he was probably one of the more effective ones. That president was a man by the name of Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge had a nickname. His nickname was Silent Cal. Uh, He was well known for not saying too many things. It wasn't that he wasn't a conversationalist. He could hold conversations with people. He just didn't really waste words. The only words that he used were ones that he felt like were important, and that was it. There was a story that went around in Washington, D.C., and it has been confirmed in different places, but there was one occasion where there was a party that he was attending, and some of the social ladies that were there, that were a part of the social society scene there in, in D.C., had decided that they were going to place a bet. And the bet was going to be uh, that uh, one of the ladies was going to be able to get him to say more than three words to her. And so she came up to him and told him that she was going to get him to say uh, more than three words. And he looked at her and just simply said this, you lose. (laughs) Now, Coolidge had different statements about uh, using a minimal amount of words. He had statements this, if you don't say anything, you won't be called on to repeat it. Or another occasion, I have never been hurt by what I have not said. And again, you cannot know too much, but you can say too much. Or ultimately this, no man ever listened himself out of a job. And that was Calvin Coolidge, and his presidency was one of uh, very quick and taking care of different things, and there wasn't a whole lot of grandstanding with his presidency. His words, when you listened to him, you paid attention. Because you knew there was a minimal amount of words being used by this individual because they didn't like writing and speaking a whole lot. You say, what does that have to do with this passage of Scripture? Because we're coming to a section that's very lengthy in words. But you have to understand that every one of these words are just as important when the Apostle Paul is writing here that he's inspired not by himself or his own thoughts and ideas, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so what we have here at the end of the book is very important. What you find uh, starting off in verse number 14, going on to chapter 16 and verse 27, is one of the longest conclusions to any letter that we have in history as far as in this time frame of when Paul was writing. See, in a conclusion to a letter, because Romans is a letter, okay, that's what that fancy word epistle uh, to the Romans means. It's a letter. That in standard form way back when, uh, you would introduce it, unlike how we do letters today, you know, it says, dear so-and-so, and you're wondering who's writing to you, and you have to go down to the end of the document to go, oh, that's who's writing me. Uh, they did things differently back in letters. They actually wrote up front who was writing, to whom they were writing, and, and just a little general statement, and then they got into the body of the letter. 
at the conclusion is where you oftentimes didn't have like grand concluding statements. It was just information. What uh, you find oftentimes in Paul's letters and the conclusions of his letters, he's, he's reminding of them, of them of things that he's giving thanks for and he's telling them that people are coming uh, or that people have come his way and he's sending greetings to different people and he's, he's making just little short commands at the end going, uh, sort of like is when your children go out the door, you give them really short commands before they go out the door. I mean, he kind of gives that in his conclusions. Uh, then oftentimes he includes a prayer and, and that type of thing. But usually with the, the letters of the Apostle Paul, he gets his conclusion in in about six or seven verses at most. You look at this and you go, that's almost two chapters worth of material is concluding information. And for us, it might seem like the Apostle Paul is wandering as you go through this. He's not really saying much, but what we're going to find is that in this section, especially this first part in chapter 15, is that the Apostle Paul is giving his reason for what he's doing and what he plans on doing. He's communicating to this church filled mainly with Gentiles, and you go, what are Gentiles? Uh, as a kid, I always thought Gentiles are like pagans. You know, that, that's how I, when, you know, pastor would talk about Gentiles, you're talking about people who, uh, no, Gentiles is just a fancy word for nations. All the nations outside of the nation of Israel were Gentiles. They're the nations, they're Gentiles. That's how they would refer to them. That Paul is in his letter here in his conclusion is going to communicate what his mission to the Gentiles was. I mean, how he got there and what he was going to do and how he was going to preach to the nations. He's giving information to the church at Rome and he's explaining why he's doing what he's doing. And he gives us insight into something that he started off with. The whole theme of the book was the fact, and you've sometimes seen it on the screens as uh, we have our intro screens and the welcome screens, but uh, we have this understanding that the whole book of Romans is about the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel of God found in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has the power to transform people. And what the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to talk about his ministry as part of bringing that good news of Jesus Christ and the power that it has to transform lives. He's just going to explain this. Uh, it's not really theological, but he's going to display it in what he's going to tell us here. And for us to walk out of here this morning, we should just simply, as we look at Paul's life and some of the details of his life, understand this, that the gospel has power to impact all nations. Okay? You say, what, what do you mean by that? The gospel has the ability to be impactful on every person on this planet. Okay, it has that ability. It's not exclusive uh, in what it's capable of doing. No, it's very inclusive in the fact that it has the ability to impact anyone forever. And so the gospel has power to impact all nations. And as we look at what the Apostle Paul states here initially is that the gospel's power was displayed to the nations in the Roman church. You think about this church at Rome, it was the center of the world. This time frame, uh, the statement was made, and we still know this uh, today, was that all roads led to Rome. 
And as such, Rome was quite the, the cosmopolitan society. It had all sorts of people from all over the world because all the world was flocking to Rome uh, for different reasons of business or pol politics or just to be at Rome to see what it was like. And so you had a lot of people that showed up in this place called Rome. Oftentimes when Paul would show up in other locations, it would be strictly one nation or another nation of people. It would just be certain tribes and cultures, not a whole mixture of them. But when you went to Rome, yes, there were Italians there, but there were a whole lot of other people in that town. Every culture and every nation was there. And Paul, who had never visited this church at Rome, okay, he hadn't visited this church at Rome yet. He's writing a letter to a group of people that he's only heard about and perhaps come in contact with some people that had been from that church, but he had never been to Rome. What he's willing to communicate about them is that their ministry and what God had done in their church had been heard throughout the world, what God had done. In fact, I want you to hold your place here and turn back to, to see what Paul had previously said in his introduction not his conclusion, but his introduction about this church at Rome. He makes a statement in verse 6. He's talking to these Romans, and he's saying this, "...among whom also ye are the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, priests from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ." And then verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests that by any means now I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. See what the Apostle Paul says, listen, I've heard of the faith, what, what God has done and what you're doing as far as your testimony to Jesus Christ there in the Roman community, and I'm looking forward to one day being with you and being comforted. Now this is the Apostle Paul Hall. Okay, if we were to say in our own mindset, if there was any kind of super Christian the Apostle Paul, but we've read in Romans already, we found out that the Apostle Paul has all the same struggles with sin and the battles with our flesh that we have. Romans 7 tells us that. But if we were to say anybody was really supreme in the faith and was really great in the faith, it was going to be the Apostle Paul. And what the Apostle Paul says is, I'm looking forward to being with you as a church and being encouraged by being with you and seeing your faith. And that's what it's talking about there in Romans chapter 1, that the faith is known. And Paul's going, I, I, I can't wait to be around you to see what Christ is doing in your life and be impacted by that. And the Apostle Paul had made previous statements that the power of God had done something in this church. Say, who started this church? We don't know. Okay, you know, people say Peter, and it's like, mm, no. There was a number of people that came to this uh, congregation, uh, this church, and, and founded it. Perhaps some who were at Pentecost. We have some that were Romans that were at Pentecost that went back, perhaps, and started the church. We don't know how it got started, but their faith is well known. In fact, as Paul is commenting here in Romans chapter 15, uh, in verse number 14, he says this, I am persuaded of you, my brethren, that 
you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. This is a church that's full of head knowledge and full of activity. You know, you can have uh, places and churches that are full of knowledge but no activity, or you can have a whole lot of activity and there's not a whole lot of knowledge going on. No, this church has got the perfect balance. They've got a, a great understanding of what God's teaching is through the Scripture and what His Son has done, and they're able to know these things and explain it to people. In fact, as it says here, you're able to admonish other people. You could, the, the individuals in this church congregation could go and tell others about Christ and have a very thorough knowledge to explain certain things of the gospel. And in their goodness, which goodness is just simply a statement of activities that are kind and generous to others, they're full of these things. They're full of goodness. They're full of knowledge that they can admonish one another. And the Apostle Paul says that's what happens when the gospel transforms people's life. People in this church who were formerly selfish and self-centered and given to all sorts of sins recorded in Romans chapter 1, and you find that they were transformed, and now they're not selfish and prideful. These are individuals that are giving and challenging one another. They're reflecting in the congregation what it's like to reflect Jesus Christ. Now, let's not just simply assume that if people are full of knowledge and that they're full of goodness, that they don't need any kind of spiritual help. Because Paul does say here in verse 15, nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you uh, in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given me of God. You go, well, what did Paul do? Paul wrote one of his lengthiest letters to a church that he describes as you're full of goodness and you're full of knowledge, able to admonish one another, but he writes them this whole letter. That does remind us of something. If we ever think that we've ever arrived in our Christianity, we've forgotten that we still have things to learn and things to remember. Because we're human. We forget things. And we need challenges. And we need admonitions. And this church at Rome, even though God is doing a work through them in their thinking and in the way that they act, he still writes them this letter and is very bold in doing that, saying, I'm putting things into your remembrance and reminding you of certain things that you need to be reminded of. And for us to ever say that we arrive misses this point where, yes, the gospel does transform us at salvation, but there's this process that continues on and will not be completed until one day in Romans chapter 8 where it talks about the fact that we'll stand before God and one day our body will be redeemed. This body that's going to break down, fall apart, and die, this body that committed all sorts of sin, one day will finally be renewed, never to sin again, never to break down because of sin with sickness and death never to have that happen again one day we'll be glorified but right now we're not glorified and no matter what god's grace has done in saving us and that we understand certain things about the bible and we're doing things that we should be as a christian that we're not where we need to be at we're always needing refining and we always need encouragement and we always need admonishment and this is what paul says you're a great church, but I did take some length and was bold about this to remind you of certain things that are the basis of Christianity and some difficult things as we went through some very difficult passages that are some of the harder topics in Christianity. But the Apostle Paul said, you needed that. 
But the, the gospel, initially, he's making the statement, it had power to change these people at Rome, to make them different than what they were before, and was changing them as they were reflecting what Christ was like. But secondly, you see in verse 15 that the gospel's power was seen through Paul's service. Paul himself is an example of what the gospel's power is like. Paul's service to the nations. The gospel's power is seen through Paul's service to the nation. See, God's grace changes a person. Look at verse 15. The Apostle Paul makes mention of the fact that I put these things in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. He's saying, the things that I'm able to do and accomplish in you by writing this and doing these things, it's not because of who I am. It's because of the grace of God that he showed to me. You think about this man, he is a man who God in his grace received, even though he persecuted God. He persecuted God. Remember the story where Paul meets, or he was Saul at the time, where Saul meets the Lord on the road to Damascus, and he says this, the Lord does, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And you say, well, how is he doing that? Because Christ wasn't on the earth or anything like that. Because Paul was persecuting Christ's body. Those that made up Christ's body, the church, and the apostle Paul was hauling them off, as you read in Acts chapter 8, and hauling them off to prison. And he even admitted this himself, that he was consenting to these people's death. He was proud of this, but God and his grace welcomed an individual that was one who killed and persecuted the body of Jesus Christ. And God saved him. And Paul says, listen, the power of God and what it's capable of doing is taking someone who is an opponent of God, an enemy of God, and make him a friend of God. And make him a servant of God and is able to use him in service. I do think of this, that it's kind of humorous that when Paul does get saved there on the road to Damascus, that God doesn't say, I have saved you and sent you to serve amongst Jews. I've thought about that for a while. Can you think of anyone more capable of reaching Jews than the Apostle Paul? He talked about his former life, that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In fact, when it came to the Jews and their laws and their rules, he was zealous in fulfilling all these things. And when he gets saved, God doesn't say, I'm making you an apostle to the Jews. No, he says, I'm making you an apostle to the nations. Now think about how the Jews viewed the other nations. They oftentimes called them dogs. In fact, that sometimes was an interchangeable word for them, dogs and nations, because that's how they viewed all the other nations of the world. They, in times, viewed themselves as supreme. Now, that's not how all Jews did, but that's how many of them did pray. That they were thankful that they weren't like the dogs. And here you have the Apostle Paul, who would have lived his life zealously as a Jew and for the Jewish nation and for the Jewish people and lived for them. And God in his grace goes, no, I'm not going to send you to Jews, though Paul did preach to Jews. You see what he does in the book of Acts, he always goes to the synagogue first, but he usually gets kicked out after about two to three weeks. And he goes, okay, I'm just going to go and talk to everybody else. But he tries to start with the Jews. It never happens. 
But you find that God in His grace is able to take a man who is a Jew of the Jews and makes him a minister, one who serves the Gentiles uh, and reaches them with the gospel. A person who you would think would never be able to do that. God in His grace and His transforming power is able to take this Jew and have him reach Gentiles, to reach the nations. And for the Apostle Paul, this sharing of the gospel as you see there in verse number 16 is that it was an act of worship for him this verse in verse 15 is a or excuse me verse 16 is one that has got all sorts of terms that is well would have been familiar to a jew when it came to sacrifices and temple worship and priests it's filled with that i mean you see verse 16 it says this that i should be a minister And that's a word that's oftentimes used for the word priest. It's one that refers to a public servant of some kind, but oftentimes is a term used for priest. It's not the word minister that we sometimes have that refers to a deacon or uh, is one that is a slave. No, this is a unique word that's used to describe one who does public service in a ceremony. The Apostle Paul just simply says this, that I should be a kind of priest-like public figure of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. Now, that word ministering is the idea of doing priestly work. It's a different word, but it's a word that just simply says this. It's like a priest who's doing works and he's offering up things to God. That's really what the priest's main work was, is to go and offer sacrifices and present things to God day in and day out. They would offer these sacrifices. And Paul says, I've been doing this kind of work where I'm working amongst Gentiles in a priestly work where I am offering up Gentiles to God. And you say, well, how is he doing that? Look at verse number 15 or 16 and continue there. He says, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. See, for a person to be saved, you say, what happens? Well, when a person gets saved, they become, what did we find out in Romans chapter 12? They become a living sacrifice holy and then this word here acceptable unto god see what the apostle paul was able to do is that he's able to preach the gospel and when you get to the practical implications of this you now have gentiles that are offering themselves up to god as living sacrifices because they've been saved by the mercies of god They now become living sacrifices. And the Apostle Paul says, this is what I'm doing. It's I'm going about in acts of bringing things to God and lifting up things to God. The Gentiles are doing this. I'm presenting to them Jesus Christ. And now they're offering themselves up as sacrifices to God. Living sacrifices, doing the work that, well, the Apostle Paul is now seeing the Holy Spirit do in their life. They've been separated, which is kind of an interesting term. That word sanctified is the idea of being holy. Here, Gentiles who were thought of being as dogs and cursed by the Jews, what he's saying is, I'm presenting them to God, and God, by the Holy Spirit, is setting apart these individuals on a level that they're, well, sacred to God. They're holy. Paul goes, this is what the the gospel has the ability to do, is to take people like this that would have nothing to do with God, and now they're offering themselves up to God as sacrifices, living sacrifices, to be transformed. And he's saying, this is what the message of Jesus Christ, dying to save individuals, can actually do 
And he goes, I just get to do the work of going around and almost in a public way preaching the gospel and seeing this happen over and over and over again. The gospel transforming people and that they are being, well, made sacrifices, living sacrifices to God. Now the last statements that we have here in verse 17 to 21, you have this idea that the gospel's power has the ability to spread all, to, to all nations. That the gospel's power can spread to all nations. I mean, first of all, what the gospel's power does, or the gospel's power has, is that it's able to glorify God. Look at verse number 17. He says this, I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain unto God. He's just simply saying this, I'm able to glorify God, magnify God by what's going on in the gospel. See, you say, well, how does God get magnified in a world that is choosing to ignore him? Romans chapter 1, they see the things of God in the universe and they, well, they don't glorify him, neither are they thankful. Well, how do you get people in this world to see God? Well, when people accept Jesus Christ as Savior and they're changed. And people go, well, how did they change? It wasn't them. It wasn't that they decided they were going to be better people and better persons and this type of thing. No, they met with one who was Jesus Christ who died for them and now they're changed and people are going, this God that you're proclaiming is able to do that? to change a person like that. Well, when people get saved, there's a glorification process that goes on where people get, begin to see God. If God's able to change that person, could He change me? If God's got that kind of power to be able to take people like that, could He do that for those people over there? See, Paul recognized the fact that God was glorified by the transforming power of the message of Jesus Christ, that God was glorified. And for Paul, when he preached, uh, there was times where the gospel's power was displayed. It was displayed by various activities. See, what Paul then does in verse 18, he describes what he did in his ministry, the different ways that he proclaimed and showed forth Christ that had the ability to transform people. Look at verse 18. It says this, For I dare not speak of anything of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me, to make Gentiles obedient by the word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. See, what Paul preaching the gospel was able to do was to make, it's kind of an interesting term here, the Gentiles obedient. Paul likes this phrase because he uses it multiple times to talk about salvation this way. Salvation is obedience. You're saying, well, that makes it sound like a work salvation. No, it's not. Because you think about what salvation is, it's a call to people to get right with God. And you say, well, how do people get right with God? They accept the Son. That's obedience. Okay, God says, you need to accept my son. They go, okay, we're sinners. We need to accept God's son. And so when it talks about the obedience of the Gentiles, you find this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul said this, by whom you receive grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. You have this idea, the obedience to the faith. 
Gentiles get saved. But part of that salvation is this idea of obedience. They're just responding to what God's call is. You need to do this. And the last statement to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 16, he makes this statement. Now to him, it's a prayer. Now to him that is of the power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. But now is manifest by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. He simply says salvation for the Gentiles is for them to obey God. I mean, that is the problem in Romans chapter 1. They're doing their own thing. They're going their own way, and God makes a call to them, believe on my son. Their response of obedience is this, have faith in the son. The apostle Paul says, listen, as I go through, I I went in different ways to see suddenly this obedience happen. In verse number 18, he talks about the fact at the end, by word and by deed, and then verse 19, by mighty signs and wonders. Paul through, and I'm going to alliterate this to make it easier for you, by words, works, and wonders, was able to help people see their need for Jesus Christ. There were times where the Apostle Paul came in, and he preached, and people immediately came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. But there were other occasions where it was that Paul came and preached, and then did works among the people. He was doing things. He was active in the community there, preaching Jesus Christ, that people got saved. But there were certain occasions where he came in as an apostle, and it wasn't that he just merely preached the word and did works there. He did wonders. What you see here is that he uses signs and wonders uh, that you read in Acts that these signs and wonders were the signs of the apostle when God was doing incredible things in the history of his people, there were, well, miracles that took place. That word signs and wonders is oftentimes used to describe the events and the activities in the book of Exodus, where God did wonderful, incredible things for the nations of the world to suddenly see this one is the true God. They were in a pagan nation of the Egyptians who had gods for everything and gods that looked like everything. And they had these gods. But here Pharaoh, when he hears, okay, let my people go so that we can go and serve this Jehovah, this Lord. And he says, well, who is Jehovah? Who is this Lord? We don't know who he is. By the time he's done, Pharaoh is well aware of his power as the whole nation of Egypt is well aware of who this God is because they've seen the signs and wonders. And you see that in the nation of Israel, when the prophet's ministry is being magnified uh, with Elijah and Elisha, all sorts of miracles that take place during their time. And when Jesus comes to earth, so that people would identify this one is truly the Son of God, all sorts of miracles took place. And those that were the apostles sent out by Jesus, they did miracles. At times, Paul would confirm his message by casting out demons or healing certain individuals. This would be the case. And so Paul, through many different means, was able to see Gentiles go, this, this, this individual is preaching to us one Jesus, who is God's Son, who can make us right with God. We need this Jesus. And so by the Paul, Paul's words, by his actions, his works, and by his, the wonders that God did through him, through the Holy Spirit, he was able to see the gospel have impact. And not only did it have impact, it was through an individual just going from place to place. 
because Paul goes on and he says, these signs and wonders, I did these by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout into Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. You say, okay, I understand where Jerusalem's at. And there were certain occasions where Paul preached in Jerusalem. We don't have many messages there, but he did preach in Jerusalem. But you do see kind of this word around. The idea is that he goes in this never-ending, well, a, a circle that just seems to keep going out and out from Jerusalem. And you, you make a following of his first missionary journey and his second missionary journey and his third missionary journey. You begin to see the Apostle Paul expanding where he's going so that he gets from Jerusalem to Illyricum. I knew I was going to say this. Illyricum. This is the time where you open up your Bible and you look at the back or you just you, you, you type into your phone, Illyricum, where is it at? Okay, Illyricum is modern day uh, Albania and Yugoslavia. And you kind of go, I didn't even realize the Apostle Paul got there. He got there in some way, shape, or form. In the accounts in Acts, we, we have him going through first Asia Minor, and then, then he eventually gets over to the Grecian Peninsula, and then he eventually expands his uh, ministry uh, on that peninsula of Greece. And perhaps on that occasion, he got somewhere up to the borders of Albania and Yugoslavia in his preaching of the message of Jesus Christ. But the Apostle Paul said, this happened as the result of me as an individual going and giving the good news of Jesus Christ. It didn't happen by accident that there were signs and wonders written in the sky. No, he came with the message of Jesus Christ as an individual, and people responded to this message so that you had people from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum that he could say have responded to the gospel and have been transformed by the working of Jesus Christ in their life. The Apostle Paul had an unusual ministry. I mean, we're not to repeat his ministry exactly in some ways because he had a unique ministry of starting churches. Because look at verse number 19, or verse 20. He said, yes, I'm going and preaching in different places and I preach from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum and have expanded the message of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But verse 20 says this, yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named lest I should build upon another man's foundation. See, what the Apostle Paul was looking to do was to go to places where Jesus Christ hadn't been preached yet. He delighted in that. In fact, one of the reasons we think as we read the book of Romans, he's going to tell them, the church, that he wants to go to Spain. Because Spain is kind of on the far edges of one edge of the Roman Empire and the gospel hadn't really been preached in that area yet and he's looking to go to Spain in order to preach the gospel where Jesus had never been named yet. See, Paul's ministry was church plant. There were others who would come along and be in the church and be there for a long period of time. The Apostle Paul acknowledged this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because in that church at Corinth, there were people going, oh, we like so-and-so better than so-and-so. We like Cephas or Peter better than we like Paul or we like Apollos better than we like Paul. And Paul's just like, it doesn't matter. All of us have got different ministries when it comes to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he made the statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says this, who is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers by whom ye believed even as the Lord gave to every man. 
I, referring to Paul, have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. He just simply says, some of us come through and our ministry gift is this, is to start things. There's others who come along and their ministry gift is to continue things. And he says, listen, I'm the one who comes in and starts. The Apollos, uh, his ministry is to be there and sustain ministries and help them grow that way. But he says, the effect is all the same. God is getting the glory. People are being saved. People are being rescued. And God is being magnified in those communities. For the Apostle Paul, he's going and preaching where other people hadn't been yet. He delighted in that. And so God's power can work in regions where Christ is unknown. This is a statement that if you're thinking that you're going to a culture that has never heard the name of Jesus Christ, can they actually eventually come to Jesus Christ? The answer is absolutely. Paul did this all the time. And so ultimately this, the Apostle Paul and what he's doing is preaching the gospel to Gentiles who have never in many cases heard the name of Jesus Christ and they're being saved. And you're saying, is this accidental? And the answer is once again, no, it's not because this was something predicted that the gospel's power in the Gentiles, in the nations that people were getting saved was predicted in the Old Testament. You find in verse number 21, it says this, but as it is written, when you see that kind of formula as you read through your Bible, it's referring to something written in the Old Testament. In this case, as you read this, it says this, to whom he was spo- or not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. Now for us, that's in a context where it's like, I have no idea what that context is but I want you to turn to where it's at and you'll understand what the importance of that passage is. Why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. Because Isaiah chapter 52, most people would be more familiar with what goes on in Isaiah 53. Because Isaiah 53 is that passage that talks about us being like sheep and wandering astray and that this one is smitten and stricken of God, that he was oppressed and afflicted, he opened not his mouth, where it's talking about, well, Jesus Christ coming into this world to save sinners, to take our stripes upon him. But in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 15, when you read Isaiah 53, you ought to read that as included in it. In the Hebrew, these are connected, it's a connected section In Isaiah 52, verse number 13 starts this way, and you have this statement, Behold my servant. Well, who's the servant being talked about here? Jesus Christ. He shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. One day he's going to be lifted up, and every name shall confess that he is Lord. But look at verse number 14. As many as were astonished at thee, His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. That's talking about Christ's crucifixion. Some of these paintings of Christ and you can recognize his face and see it. No, when you would have seen him, it would have been the most battered individual you would ever seen. That's what his visage was like on the cross, what he looked like. But then verse 15, it says this, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouth at him. For that which had not been told them, they shall see. 
and that which they had not heard, shall they consider her? You go, who are they going to consider? It's prophesied here that nations and kings and rulers are going to consider this one who is highly exalted, whose visage was marred, he was crucified, the nations are going to hear about him. And then it goes into this passage in Isaiah 53 that is so familiar to us about Christ's death on the cross and is buried uh, with the rich and being risen again and lifted up. But it was prophesied that this gospel had power amongst the nations, not just for Jews, but for everyone in the world. This one who was going to come into the world was going to have the power to save them and that people would consider him and believe on him. And so for the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15, he's just listing out, here's what I'm doing. I'm ministering to people I never thought I would minister to. It's the grace of God working through me. And I'm preaching this message of Jesus Christ to to people who have never even heard of Jesus, haven't even a clue to who he is. And I'm preaching amongst them. And what I'm seeing is that these individuals are turning to God and they're being saved and they're being saved to the glory of God. They're magnifying what God can do to transform lives through the saving power of Jesus Christ. And we might get done with a passage like this and go, good job, Paul. You were doing this. You were preaching the gospel to the nations. Good job. That's what you were called to do. But in closing, that's the very same thing you're called to do. We sometimes forget what the last words of Christ were to us on earth. But Matthew chapter 28, as you read that passage, and the Lord goes up and ascends. But just before he ascends, he says to them, Go ye therefore and teach select groups of people. Go and and, uh, teach people that are very similar to who you are kind of like you no what the command was this is go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them the idea there is that in baptism you're confessing that a person's gotten saved so you're looking to get people saved baptizing them in the name of the father son and the holy ghost and then this teaching them to observe whatsoever i commanded you basically say this what you're supposed to do is see people saved and then get them on a course that they look like christ that they're reflecting what Christ is like, and they'll go out and reach other people like this. And so for us, Paul's mission is our mission. That we have responsibility to teach all nations. That word teach is the idea of discipling, make followers of Jesus Christ. Well, how do you make people followers of Jesus Christ? Lift up Christ in front of them, preach them what Jesus Christ is like, what he's done for them, and lift up Christ so that they become followers of Jesus Christ. And you'll say, well, will that work? The answer is, Paul is telling us it worked. That lifting up Jesus Christ to people that may not have ever heard of Jesus Christ, that those individuals will become obedient and offer themselves as sacrifices to God because they meet this Jesus and they believe on him. They're obedient. It can happen for us. We can do the same kind of thing that Paul was proclaiming here. We can see people saved and transformed because God has called us to do the very same thing. So the gospel 
is the power of God. It's not us. It's the power of God to bring people to salvation. We ought to be declaring that message just as much as the Apostle Paul spent his life doing that very same thing. Lord, we're thankful that people came to us. That individuals came to us, whether it was preachers or individuals or who it may have been, but they were willing to lift up Jesus Christ before our eyes and say, this one is the one whom you need, whom God says you must believe upon in order to be saved. There's no hope of coming before God except through Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He's the life. Lord, someone did that for us. And we're thankful for the transforming power of Jesus in our own life when we finally put our faith and trust in Him. Lord, now help us to be individuals who lift up Jesus Christ to those that have never heard. It's our responsibility. And we're not the ones who do the transforming of those individuals. It's when they finally accept that message that it will change them but we've got to share it. And so, Lord, we pray in our dealings with family members, our dealings with co-workers and dealing with people in the community, answering their questions, that we would take the opportunity to lift up Christ through words and then lift up Christ by our actions that they'd see him in both ways. And may we be able to rejoice at seeing the power of God transform for eternity people around us. Lord, we're thankful for Jesus and the grace given to us. May we proclaim it in your son's name. Amen.